My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Hello, everyone. This is Caleb coming directly to you from my pastor's office. I want to quickly apologize for the uh, lack of video and podcast the past couple weeks. Um, I thought I had found a good way of recording the sermons live while I deliver them on Sunday mornings. Um, but the past two Sundays, I got back to my computer after worship and saw that it had failed to record the entire thing. And so I haven't had the, um, I haven't had the data and the recording to, to post, but I'm going to catch up this afternoon and post them in my uh, the old format of just uh, delivering them directly to the computer uh, just from my office. Uh, so uh, hopefully I'll get that figured out in the next couple of weeks, but, but we'll see. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention here is that most, if not all of you that see this video will probably already know this because you're connected to Grifty United Methodist Church or myself in some way, but I am transitioning out of my position at Grifton as the head pastor at Grifton. I'm going back to school in order to start studying for my doctorate in Old Testament uh, theology at Duke Divinity School in the fall. And so if you've been following this channel or listening to these sermons for any length of time, you will probably know that that is a huge opportunity and sort of dream come true level um level of opportunity for me, um, given how much I enjoy the Old Testament and the Bible and how passionate I am about it. Um, obviously, it is a bittersweet move because we will be uh, moving away from the communities that we have really grown attached to in the past couple years here in Grifton and in Kinston at Westminster. So um, uh, the 30 or 40 of you that listen to this podcast and that watch this um, these series of videos, a couple of you have asked me if any form of this podcast slash YouTube channel will continue after I have transitioned from my position as head pastor at Grifton. First of all, I don't know who the next pastor is, but he or she may very much want to continue posting uh, sermon videos from Grifton on the the Grifton United Methodist YouTube channel. So I would encourage you to uh, tune into those. As far as uh, the podcast, um, I don't know. I don't... I don't really plan on preaching every Sunday um, while I am uh, at Divinity School and, and doing my uh, THD. So I, I can't say that I'll be posting weekly sermons. Um, any sermons that I happen to preach at, at churches in the area, I probably will throw up on the podcast uh, just for fun. If there's anything else that you feel like the podcast could become or could do, um, I'd be interested in thinking about that as in sort of short reflections or sermonettes or Bible study sort of things. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I've been tossing around some ideas in my own head, um, something that would be sustainable and something that I could keep up while doing doctoral level studies. Uh, but if you have any ideas or thoughts or something that you'd love to hear me go into um, once I am no longer posting weekly sermons, um, let me know. Email me at the email that's always at the end of these episodes, cpunt at nccumc.org. With that being said, um, let's read our scripture readings for this uh, week, which is actually um, a couple Sundays ago. But our scripture reading for this week, there's two of them. Um, the first one comes from Genesis chapter 6. We're reading Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. 
When human beings began to increase in number upon the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide with humans forever for they are mortal and their days will be numbered at 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of man and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Our second scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 6, and we're reading Isaiah chapter 6, 10 through 10 through 17. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, I'm wondering, have any of y'all seen the movie Signs? It's a bit of an outdated reference at this point, but uh, it was pretty popular. It's got Mel Gibson in it, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. It's generally considered to have one of the lamest endings in movie history. And what makes the ending so disappointing is that it turns out the aliens are, uh, well, it turns out the aliens are allergic to water, by the way. That's the big twist, and it's, it's pretty dumb. Um, but what makes it really disappointing is that the first 90 minutes of the movie are exceptional. They're often thought of as a sort of masterpiece in the suspense monster alien genre. And uh, the movie has a very slow pace. The aliens don't show up until like two thirds of the way through, but it's not boring in the slightest because these alien monster things, they're, they're constantly lurking in the background. They're leaving designs in the cornfields. They're stealing farm animals. They kidnap a neighbor. And the first time that you actually catch a glimpse of one of these creatures, you just see one quickly flash across the screen in an amateur video that's being shown on the evening news. You, the first time you catch a glimpse of it, your, your heart just stops in your chest. It's terrifying because the film has done such a good job of keeping them in the shadows and ratcheting up the suspense. And uh, this is a decision that all suspense monster movies have to make, right? When do you reveal your creature? When will we get the first glimpse of the alien or the werewolf or whatever? And you need to be very careful about this because as soon as the viewer has seen it, a lot of the suspense, a lot of the fear goes away because what we're most afraid of is, after all, the unknown, that unseen being that is planning and plotting and sabotaging in the background. This sermon, as strange as it may sound, it, it could have a sort of similar feel to it because we're going to take a look at the glimpses, the hints that the Bible gives us of some of the monsters lurking in the shadows of this world. This marks a slight pivot in our Lenten sermon series during which we've been looking at the reasons for the problems in our world. So far, we've been looking at sin and evil mainly through the lens of personal, individual responsibility. What does it mean when a person misses the mark, betrays God or their loved ones, or commits a crooked action that makes him or others crooked? But this is only half, maybe even less than half, of what the Bible has to say about sin and evil. In the Bible, sin and evil is not just a matter of personal, individual morality and responsibility. No, it exists in many other forms as well. We sort of hinted at this in the sermon uh, in the series that we looked at the story of Cain and Abel and the beast crouching at the foot of the door. 
whose desire is for Cain, but he's supposed to master it. Uh, but over the next two weeks, we're going to zero in on these other manifestations of sin and evil, the forms that sin and evil take outside of personal actions and personal culpability. In keeping with this pivot, uh, in place of the one weekly word the past few weeks, chata, pesha, avon, sin, transgression, iniquity, this week we have three words, but they all sort of describe the same thing. They come from our New Testament reading for this week that was from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. The rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world. Or as Paul sums up this group in the last phrase of verse 12, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Did you catch that? That that was your first glimpse, like the blurry alien darting across the scene in signs. Let's jump into it. Um, do you all know what a A plot and a B plot is? You do, even if you don't realize it. An A plot is the main storyline in a book, a TV show or something like that, while a B plot is a little side story that's happening at the same time as the main events. Like in an episode of Seinfeld, the A plot might revolve around Jerry dealing with some sort of problem that he's having with a girl that he's dating, while the B plot follows George's ill-conceived decision to start wearing a toupee. The majority of the episode is about Jerry, but we get these little asides that follow George's funny antics as well. The A plot of the Bible which begins in Genesis 1, is the one that we're most familiar with, right? It's the story of God and his physical creation, the relationship between God and the earth, God and humanity. And you know how it goes. God creates the world and humanity to govern over it with him in love and in peace. Things go awry when humanity decides that they want to be like God, to take God's authority for themselves. And the relationship ruptures and God begins this long epic of salvation, the plan to repair the relationship between God and God's creation. That's the A plot of the Bible. There is also this very strange B-plot, this entire other story that seems to be going on behind the scenes that occasionally pops up and it intertwines with the main storyline. It affects things from the shadowy background. If the A-plot of the Bible is about God and his physical creation, the B-plot is about God and his heavenly creatures, his spiritual creations. And the Bible, through little scenes here and there, seems to imply that along with the creation of earth and humanity, maybe even preceding it, God also created a divine council. That's the phrase that I'm going with. A set of spiritual beings who are tasked with helping God govern the spiritual realm, God's space, the heavens, is how the Bible usually refers to it. Uh, Now, God is all-powerful. He doesn't need help governing anything. But it's one of the unique characteristics of the Christian God is that he seems to delight in sharing his authority and having faithful and loving helpers to partner with him in taking care of the things that he creates. And just like God deemed it good to create humanity to be his image on earth, his partners in caring for the earth, he also thought it good to create a divine council, heavenly spiritual beings to be his helpers in the skies and in the heavens. Now, we don't get the whole story about this divine council. This is a B-plot, after all. But we do get little peaks, tiny scenes with this story as it develops. And I decided to zero in on one of them this morning. It might be worth looking up uh, so you can follow along with me if you have a Bible at hand. It's going to be from 1 Kings chapter 22, starting in verse 19. 1 Kings 22 verse 19. And this scene is very strange. It's a little eerie even because it gives us this small window in a different other reality that is apparently happening alongside our own. And some quick background. Uh, in First Kings, the prophet Micaiah is reporting a vision that he saw of the divine throne room. And all of this takes place at a point in Israel's history where Israel is navigating a bunch of delicate situations with neighboring countries that want to invade and destroy them. And everyone in Israel is trying to figure out what to do. So we're in 1 Kings 22, verse 19. The prophet Micaiah says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. 
I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. Quick pause. Can you immediately sort of see the strangeness of this scene, right? Where are we? Who are all these beings that are surrounding the Lord? This is the divine council. Verse 20. And the Lord said, Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another suggested that. Finally, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will do it. I will entice him. So basically, the divine council is trying to decide how to go about this very delicate international maneuver in the conflicts that are plaguing Israel. And the Lord essentially turns to his advisors, looking for input and for volunteers. One suggested this, another suggested that. And then one of the members of the divine council steps up, so to speak. It's a very strange little scene. It's a peek into the spiritual realm and the ways that the B plot sometimes intersects with the A plot. A lot of commentators on the Bible actually think that this B plot begins right alongside the main storyline in Genesis 1. And I wonder if you can guess where, if you can think back to the creation narrative in Genesis 1, uh, think through the days, the hosts of heaven, the great lights to rule over the day and over the night on the fourth day. We modern people, we think of the sun, moon, and stars as balls of burning gas, but that's our modern framework. The authors of the Bible, they didn't have those concepts to work with. When they looked up at the sun, moon, and stars, they saw a way of talking about the divine realm the hosts of heaven, God's spiritual creations, which he instituted to govern the heavens, to govern the skies, and to shed light upon the earth below. Humans to govern down below, on the ground, on earth, and the divine council to govern up above. It is this wonderful symmetry to it. Well, how did the humans do in their task of governing the earth below? Poorly, right? We know that story. The A plot tells us of how humanity was not content in their role as God's helpers and partners. They wanted to be like God to claim more knowledge and power for themselves. Our Old Testament reading for this morning, which is another strange one. If you've been following along these videos, we are, we are headed into weird parts of the Old Testament. Uh, but Genesis 6, our Old Testament reading, seems to tell a corollary tale. It's a story of how the divine council, or at least parts of the divine council at least, fell to a similar kind of temptation. This is in Genesis 6. When human beings began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humanity were beautiful and they took them as their wives, any that they chose. Sons of God. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? Does God have many sons more than Jesus? No. In the Hebrew language, sons of X is simply a way of categorizing something. Sons of God refers to other spiritual beings that God has made, his creations, not his children, who are supposed to help him reign in the heavens. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humanity were beautiful. Test your Bible knowledge. What else was beautiful, or more specifically, pleasing to the eye earlier in the book of Genesis? It's the fruit. The fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In this little aside, this peek into the B-plot, it appears that some members of the divine council also decided that they wanted more than their assigned role. They did not want to be God's helpers in ruling the heavens. Instead, they would rather run the place themselves down here on earth. Verse 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children with them. Nephilim, that's just a transliteration of the Hebrew. Those words literally mean the fallen ones, the ones who fell. Some members of the divine council partook of the forbidden fruit, so to speak. And from that point on, the fallen ones have walked the earth. Oh, that, that's another glimpse at the monsters, at the rulers and the powers. 
For more insight into how this B-plot develops, what happened with the monsters, the fallen ones, uh, we have to look at the story of the Tower of Babel, actually. I'm assuming y'all remember that story. It's in Genesis 11, the first tribe of humanity who God told to spread out and to multiply upon the face of the earth. Uh, They decided to not do that. Instead, they wanted to all stick together in one place and build a tower up to the heavens, up to God's space, in order to make a name for themselves. Now, within the imagination of the Bible, does this sound like a good idea or a bad idea? It is a very bad idea, right? This is another attempt on behalf of humanity to usurp God, to reject God's assigned perfect role in order to seize power and authority by any means necessary. In this story, in Genesis 11, God comes down to see the tower and he decides to mix up the languages of humanity so they are forced to fulfill his commandment to spread and to multiply. And what's really interesting about this story for our purposes today is that there was apparently more going on behind the scenes than the narrative in Genesis 11 immediately reveals to us. We know this because in Deuteronomy 34, Moses, or the author of this part of Deuteronomy, is writing generations and generations after the events of the Tower of Babel. And he looks back on this event and he fills in some holes. He gives us a peek at what was happening in the B-plot at the time. There's another one that might be useful to look up, Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 7 says this, Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all of mankind and he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Did you catch that? He's referring to the Tower of Babel when God divided all of mankind, but the author adds this very interesting slash terrifying detail. He set boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Basically, what it looks like the author is imagining here, what he's telling us, is that the Tower of Babel was not just a physical rebellion, it was a spiritual rebellion. The fallen ones, the Nephilim, were involved. And when God scattered the people, he scattered the fallen ones as well. And as each nation slunk away from the rubble of the Tower of Babel, a rogue spiritual being followed them, was also sent into exile, and was determined to continue in their rebellion and to wreak havoc on the nations and the people within them that they were assigned to. Now, I don't know what kind of experiences might be out there on the other side of this screen um, regarding spiritual warfare. I can't say that I've had a clear-cut experience of it myself, but I know people who have. People who have seen such pain and such suffering or such evil that it was just no longer explicable using the language of the physical world and of human beings. It was clear that there was another element, there was a rogue, destructive, spiritual element to what was happening. Um, And even after only hearing about or reading about such things myself, they are terrifying. They will make your heart stop. It is very scary to catch a glimpse of sin and brokenness and evil that is personified, that is active, and that is aggressive. As Christians, we believe that these glimpses are a result of this B-plot of the Bible that we have sketched out this morning. Spiritual creations that were not content with their assigned role, that were punished by God and sent into the earth. So what, it, what does this mean for us? We need to ask that question. For those of us living in the A-plot now, the earth down below, what does it mean to learn that there is this entire other dimension at play. Monsters, fallen spiritual beings at work in the background, determined to play out their sinful ambitions of power and destruction over the course of human history. What in the world do we do about that? I've got three takeaways for us before we have our weekly glimpse at Easter, before we hint at the time when Jesus will put an end to all evil in all forms. Three takeaways. Two of them are do-nots, things that we should not do. And the final is a positive, something that we should do. 
The first do not. We should not try to make this B plot into the A plot. We all know people, I think, who are just very fixated on this particular part of the Christian story, who seem to almost really like talking about the spiritual warfare they discern behind everything, from global events to a PTA meeting that didn't go the way they wanted it to, to rising gas prices. Or the person who seems to really relish telling stories about literal demons they've run into while camping, or how they discovered the satanic origins behind the Buick logo, or rap music or something. Sometimes media can even play into this. Book like Books like Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, or even C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, as much as I love C.S. Lewis, I think kind of fits into this category. Books and movies where every single person has their own personal demon that is sitting on their backs at all times and everything, whispering in their ears, and the entire story depends on how well one does or does not fight them off. It's not that these stories aren't interesting, maybe even illuminating in certain cases, but I think they can really lead us down the wrong path if they begin encouraging us to make the B plot into the A plot, if they lead us uh, towards being so focused on what is relatively a small aspect of the Christian story that we neglect and forget the main big portions. Another way of saying this is we should focus on what the Bible focuses on. There is so much more in the Bible about loving your neighbor, about how to follow in the steps of Jesus by treating other people well, about how to defend the outcast, look out for the marginalized, work on our own holiness and our own uprightness. The Bible has so much more to say about God's powerful work to redeem and reconcile humanity to himself, about how nothing can separate us from his love, about how we have nothing to fear because we've been claimed as his children. The Bible has so much more to say about these sort of things that we need to make sure we don't turn the B plot into the A plot. Uh, sometimes people can even get really anxious about uh, dark powers and dynamic, d- demonic forces. I, I went through a phase myself as a child every once in a while. And to that person, I would just want to say that there is so much more in the Bible describing God's absolute power and authority and as a God who protects his children and whose will cannot be finally opposed. There's a reason that this is the first sermon in my career that I have preached specifically on demons and spiritual forces of evil. It's not that I don't think these things are important to know about and to think about. They are. They're in the Bible, after all. But I want my instruction and my preaching to focus on the things that the Bible focuses on. And I think actually one in a hundred sermons on demons is actually a pretty faithful ratio to the biblical text. The second do not is do, do not use any of what we have talked about this morning as a weapon against those that you disagree with. Historically, Christians have had a horrible tendency of taking this part of the biblical story, which again is a B-plot, not the main point, and weaponizing it against whoever they don't like or whoever they were scared of. The most egregious and literal examples of this, of course, is something like the Salem witch trials or the tendency of the German church in the early 20th century to depict Jews as devils or demons. Most often nowadays, it manifests in flippant assertions that this politician or this group of people or this musical artist is clearly being influenced by Satan, and therefore anyone that would vote for them or listen to them is literally in league with the devil. Um, And to counteract this, I just want to read to you the first part of Paul's reading again this morning. It begins, for our conflict is not against flesh and blood. It's the first thing that he says. We are not at war with other humans or other groups of humans. To use the Bible's talk of spiritual warfare as simply a tool in the machinations of human beings is to directly go against what Paul is saying. That's not to say that you don't need to be aware and to be careful. We're going to get to that in a second. But you should always be extremely cautious before ascribing any person or movement or group to spiritual influence. And you should never use an excuse for violence or hatred or conflict. Because again, say it with me if you need to, our conflict is not against flesh and blood. All right, third and finally, our final takeaway, and our only do. What do we do about this? 
The fact that behind our physical world, there's a cosmic drama taking place. There are beings, rulers, powers that exist beyond what we can see and hear and feel and touch. Some of them of which have rebelled against the Lord Almighty and are seeking to undermine his warriors and his children. What do we do about that? Well, we do what the Bible tells us to do. We put on the full armor of God. The full armor of God. It's Paul's famous metaphor to describe how the development and the cultivation of Christian virtues can act as a shield, a barrier, some protection against the enemies of God and of our Savior Jesus. The belt of truth is the first one. Those who are immersed in the truth of Jesus and the story of the all-powerful God, who know what kind of God he is, what it looks like to follow him, they're able to pick out the schemes and the influences of the deceiver because they stand out like oil in the snow. The breastplate of righteousness, having developed the, the virtues of God's Son, Jesus Christ, it's able to shield us from the corrosive effect of the uh, powers and the forces that surround us. The shield of faith, resting in the knowledge that God is so much more powerful than these monsters, that he is their creator as well, after all, is able to stop the arrows of the evil one in their tracks. Notice, notice, in keeping with our do not takeaways, up to this point, this has all been armor, right? In other, way, in other words, these are defensive elements. Paul seems to imagine that the character traits of our Savior Jesus, they act as armor, as a defense, as a force field of protection from the influence and the power of these evil forces. If we are truly allowing the Bible to inform us about how we react to the realm of spiritual evil, we will never find ourselves harming another human being because it doesn't make sense. All we have is armor, right? That's not totally true, though. There's one weapon in our arsenal. What is it? It's the sword of the spirit, which Paul clarifies is the word of God. In other words, our only weapon is the story of the Bible, the truth that there is an all-powerful God who loves his fallen creation so much, physical and spiritual, that he was willing to come and die for it, only to rise again for its justification and victory. That is our weapon. That is the only weapon that we need. We declare this truth to the world. And in doing so, we literally do battle against Satan and his minions. And so we are going to conclude this morning by taking a swing of the sword, by reading another section of Paul that shows what is the ultimate truth of the world and of God's power in the world, even in regards to these monsters. Paul writes, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.